first reading this morning is comprised of five selections from the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your follow Father will not forgive your sins. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who, then, are you to judge your neighbor? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Second reading this morning is from Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him a million dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please, be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? Then the king Angry, sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. We're beginning a new four-week sermon series this morning on the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of all time, probably the most famous oration of any kind of all time. And four weeks is not going to be sufficient. It's too short. So this is just going to be kind of an abbreviated look. At some point, I'd like to do a full-length treatment of the Sermon on the Mount in 10 or 12 weeks. That's not going to be this series. This series is just going to be cherry-picking a few of the more famous statements, culturally recognized statements, statements everybody's heard of, Christians and non-Christians, from the sermon, and seeing if we can't figure out what they mean and figure out what it would look like to try to live according to them. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks. This morning we have judging, which we'll get to in just a second. Before we get into the sermon, I want to mention that we do already know what our next series is going to be. So we're doing Sermon on the Mount for September. In October, we're going to be doing marriage, how to have a strong marriage according to the Bible, uh, principles for a healthy marriage, the common problems that plague marriages. And I want to encourage you now, I want to plant the seed now to invite your friends to this series, especially the the first week of the series, which is going to be October 4th. Remember back at Easter, we made this concerted effort to all invite our friends, 
It was this great day, and we're going to kind of do a mini version of that on October 4th, a month from now, where we all invite our friends, those who couldn't come on Easter, those who haven't been back since Easter, to this first uh, week of the marriage series, October 4th, so be thinking about that now. But for September, Sermon on the Mount, and today, judging, you heard the, the passage is read, and there's one sentence in particular that we're looking at from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, do not judge, do not judge others. He prohibits it. So there's going to be two sections, just two sections to this morning's sermon. The first section is called the standard, and then the second section is called the secret. And the way it's going to work is like this. The first section, we're going to lay out this standard, this prohibition against judging and figure out what exactly it is that's being prohibited. And what we're going to see is that it's a very high moral bar, so high that virtually none of us are living up to it. None of us are keeping it. So after the first section, we're all going to be feeling very bad about ourselves. And I do want to say that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, a couple of things. A, we're really glad you're here. This church is for you. And B, this, this doesn't apply to you. These standards that we're going to be talking about, these, these high moral bars, it doesn't apply to you. So you get a free pass. Uh, but it does apply to the rest of us, so we're all going to be feeling bad after section one. Thank goodness there's section two, which is the secret. And the secret, we're going to talk about how do you actually live this way? What's the, what's the path? What's the trick to keeping Jesus' commandment to not judge others? And there is a secret, and we're going to see that at the end. So that's where we're going, the standard and the secret. So first, the standard. And we've, we've, it's not complicated. We mentioned it already. Just four words, do not judge Others And you, you might think it's a, a typo, but it's there three times in the Sermon on the Mount alone. He says it three different ways in the Sermon on the Mount. Keeps coming back to that theme. And then James repeats it in his letter uh, very clearly. And these weren't included in the reading this morning, but Paul repeats it as well. Several times in the letters of Paul, he talks about this problem of judging others and prohibits Christians to do it. Do not judge others. No exceptions, just a blanket rule. Do not judge others. So the first order of business is obviously figuring out what that is, what is this judging, delineating exactly what this behavior is that's being prohibited. And I thought about kind of drawing out this section of the sermon and trying to reason and travel together toward a definition of judging, Uh, but there are too many other things we need to talk about. So I'm going to instead just give you a definition and hope that you accept it. Um, If you don't accept it, you can just entertain it for the, the course of the sermon at least. The definition of judging, according to me, um, but I think this is close to the, the biblical definition. That, that what's being prohibited here is uh, looking down on someone because they fail to conform to some particular standard. I'll say that again. Looking down on someone because they fail to conform to some particular standard. And the looking down on is the key. You know, there's that place in Philippians 2 where Paul says, consider others better than yourselves. And judging is essentially the reverse of that. Judging is considering others less than yourselves because they don't measure up in one way or another. And the Bible says, don't do it. You're not allowed, you're not permitted to do this, to look down on others. And everybody does it. You know, if if that's true, if that's really what judging is that's being prohibited here, then we're all in trouble because we all do this. We're all extremely proficient at this this practice of judgmentalism. Um, some of you, you know, one of the myths I wanted to spell in the sermon is that there are, are some 
groups of people or some parts of the country that are very judgmental, and there are other groups of people or types of people that are very accepting and tolerant and non-judgmental. And some of you may have thought that. You know, when I, when I said this morning, we're talking about judging, you may have thought, well, that's not so much the sermon I need to hear. That's the sermon my relatives back home need to hear, you know, in the Midwest or the South or Texas. And there's this sense that, you know, in the conservative... You thought it. That's why you're laughing, because you thought it. There's this sense that the conservative areas of the country struggle with this, but in New York, we're in this great, progressive, tolerant, accepting city. We don't judge. And that's, it's just nothing could be further from the truth. I remember visiting this small church in Seattle. This, you see this attitude on both coasts. This small church in Seattle where their, their number one hallmark, their, their defining characteristic was that they wanted to be an accepting church, accepting of all lifestyles, accepting of all different kinds of people. This was their thing that they were accepting, that they were non-judgmental. So I was visiting the church with a friend from Tennessee, and we walked up to the pastor, and the first thing out of the pastor's mouth was, whoa, you're, you seem pretty cool for being from Tennessee, Everybody judges. They just judge based on different criteria. We all do this. And to convince you of that, what I want to spend this first section of the sermon doing is talking about the two main types of judging. And once we go through these, you will see how prevalent and pervasive a judging spirit is. So the two main types of judging, which are superficial judging on the one hand and spiritual judging on the other. Superficial judging and spiritual judging. So first, with respect to superficial judging, what I want to do with this one is give you a list of the top five areas in New York in which we superficially judge other people. We just want to list them for you, and then you're, you, when we put them all out there, you say, wow, we, we all really do do this. So what are these five? I've made them all start with A, so we can remember them better. Number one, first at the top of the list is appearance, judging based on appearance. We love to judge people based on appearance. We can't help but judge them based on appearance. There are whole websites dedicated to the hobby of judging people based on appearance. But we don't need those websites in New York because we have the city. We have the streets. You pass by so many people every day. Some of you in this room, you judge every person you walk by on the street based on how good-looking they are and how well-dressed they are. Some of you in this room feel disdain and revulsion when somebody who is particularly unattractive catches your eye. Some of you in this room judge instantly whether you could become friends with a person or not based on how they're dressed. And you say, how did he know? How did he know I do that? And the answer is, I'm, I'm one of you because I'm one of you because I'm just as messed up as, as you are. It's uh, an unfair advantage I have in preaching to you. It's this insider information. We all do this. We love to judge based on appearance. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's always been like this in every society, but I can't imagine that it's ever been as bad as it is right here, right now. Beauty is everything in our world, from the cradle to the grave. You know, a cute kid gets more attention than a not-cute kid. A cute old lady gets more attention than a not-cute old lady. We judge people and look down on them based on their appearance. Number two is achievement. We judge in this city based on achievement. You know, again, it's looking down on someone if they don't measure up to some particular standard. So we have a standard of where we think people should be at a certain point in their lives and in their careers. And if they haven't attained that stature, if they haven't accomplished as much, if they haven't risen as high as we think they should have, then we look down on them. 
The third one is academics, where somebody went to school, um, where they study, what degrees they have. And really with this one, it's not just so much where you went to school, but I'm also, I was looking for an A word. So it's not just academics, but really what I'm talking about is intelligence. We judge people based on how smart they are or how smart we think they are based on two seconds with them. And I know people who, if, if they're talking to someone and that person is not particularly eloquent at expressing themselves, if they're not good at getting their point across in a persuasive fashion, then they'll just discount everything that person has to say immediately. They'll just look right through them. How smart is this person? Is this somebody, somebody I want to hang out with and be friends with, or is this somebody that's not smart enough for me? We judge people based on their academics and their intelligence Number four, we judge based on affluence. What do you think of or what do you feel toward people who have more money than you? What do you think of or what do you feel toward people who have less money than you do? We judge based on this, and it goes both ways. It's not just those who have more looking down on those who have less. It's also those who have less looking down upon those who have more because you have some set number in your mind of this is how much a person should make and have and no more. And if somebody goes above that, you feel like you have a right to judge them. Where did you get that number? We judge those who have a different amount of money than we do. And then lastly is ancestry, judging based on race and ethnicity and country of origin. And this obviously gets talked about a lot. It's overplayed. I understand everybody's tired of hearing about it. It's constantly in the media, but it doesn't make it any less real any less prevalent. And again, with this one, it's just as big a deal in New York as it is anywhere else. Everybody in this room judges every day based on race and ethnicity. And if you think you don't, if that offends you when I say that to you, then you are probably worse off than the rest of us in this area. We all do this. Superficial judging. So does anyone still think they don't have a problem with judging other people? That's just the first type. There's a whole second type of judging that's actually worse than the first, worse than superficial judging, and that's spiritual judging. And it's worse for a couple of reasons. It's more dangerous for a couple of reasons. The first reason it's worse than superficial judging is because we're prone to think that we're more justified in doing it. So when you judge somebody based on uh, superficial things, appearance or intelligence, you know that you really shouldn't. You know that it's, it's really not okay. And you know that those things, judging someone based on how they look or how smart they are or how much money they have, you know that those things aren't important to God. And so you're judging them based on something superficial, something that's not core to them. And so you kind of know it's wrong. But what is spiritual judging? Spiritual judging, again, going back to our definition of judging. So judging is looking down on someone when they fail to conform to a standard. Spiritual judging is when you look down on someone because they fail to conform to some spiritual or moral standard, because their character is deficient in some way, because they've made some moral mistake, because they don't live up to what you take to be the standards for right and wrong and how to live. And the reason that's even more dangerous is because those things do matter, and those things do matter to God. So you can kind of convince yourself that it's okay to judge people based on this not only that, but with uh, superficial judging, the standards we judge people against are, are um, kind of arbitrary, you know, how people look. We know that there's not really one standard for that. It's kind of in our head. But with the spiritual and moral judging, there are objective standards. And so when you hold somebody up to these standards and they fall short of them, you're thinking, well, this is really God's standard anyway. This standard is in the Bible. It says it right there. So it's not me that's judging them. It's, it's God that's saying it. And John Wesley said about this, what's, what makes this sin 
so beguiling, and it is a sin, is, quote, we judge others out of a desire to serve God. We, we are zealous against sin, and out of that, we sin. We're so against sin that we sin because of it. And it's tricky. It's tricky because of that. And Jesus talked, when he was talking about judging, was specifically talking about this, this spiritual judging. Judging somebody else. The superficial judging is bad enough, but the spiritual judging is far worse. Judging somebody's character, judging their worth as a human being because they have failed to live up to some moral standard. Now, we have to separate this from something else, which is making moral evaluations or taking a moral stance, which is a different thing. Because oftentimes when people hear Jesus words do not judge the first place they go with that is see you shouldn't tell anyone what's right or wrong live and let live and that's why this is actually one of the most popular verses of the sermon on the mount because people like that idea live and let live but that can't be what it means because jesus himself was constantly telling people the difference between right and wrong he was constantly calling people out for their sin he was constantly very direct and saying to someone you got to stop what you're doing. So it can't mean that. Back to the definition. It's about the heart. It's about the looking down upon. It's about noticing that somebody falls short of the standard, which there's nothing wrong with in and of itself, and then making the move from that, from noting it, to then looking down upon them and making it a matter of their worth as a person. But what's difficult about it is it's very hard to do one without the other. It's very hard for human beings to notice that somebody has fallen short of a moral standard. They've transgressed some rule in the Bible. They're, they're living in a way that God says not to live. To notice that they're doing that and be honest about that and yet not let that affect the way you view them. It's very hard to do one without the other. Such that and in a liberal culture like New York, the assumption is it's impossible to do one without the other. You have to choose. You can either be this cool, laid-back, accepting person who has no moral standards whatsoever and you just take everyone as they are. Or you can have moral standards, but you're going to be self-righteous and judgmental and hypocritical. And it's a, it's a fair question. Is it possible to do one without the other? The easiest way by far to get rid of judgmentalism would be to get rid of moral standards. That's true. But that's kind of cheating. You know, it's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's like saying uh, that striking out is a problem caused by going up to bat. Well, it's true, but what we're trying to do is figure out a way that you can go up to bat without striking out. Figure out a way that you can keep your moral standards intact without entering into this spirit of judgmentalism. And the assumption is it's not possible. You can't do that. But there's one counterexample to the contrary, and that's Jesus. Even if you don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, you do have to admit that everything about him, the record we have of his life, every record we have of him, shows him to be exactly this sort of paradoxical character. The most demanding, the most strict moral teacher of all time. Easily, bar none. And yet, not judgmental in any way. He would hang out with the most immoral people in his day. In fact, the, the kind of straight-laced people, as you know, were always on him about why do you hang out with all these immoral people. So somehow Jesus was able to do both. He was able to be strict with his morals and be honest about right and wrong and yet not engage in this judging spirit. Well, what we, we want to figure out is how. How did he do that? How did he hold on to both at the same time? So that takes us to the second section of the sermon, the secret. What's the secret? We now know everybody in here judges. Either you judge in the superficial way, which is bad, or you judge in the spiritual way, 
which is even worse, or both. A lot of us do both. Um, and now what we want to figure out is how do you stop? Because it feels impossible to stop, to, to notice these things without actually letting it affect the way you view another person. How do you stop? The Bible gives us three reasons not to judge, three motivations not to judge that can help us. It never just tells us, don't do this. It then gives us motivations and reasons why. So what I want to do in the rest of the sermon with the time we have left is just walk you through these three reasons. And they're each full sentences, so I'll just read them to you um, as we go along. So number one, the first one, I'm not qualified to judge. When I judge, I make a fool of myself. I'm not qualified to judge. When I judge, I make a fool of myself. And we're not qualified to judge in two particular aspects. We're not good enough to judge, and we're not smart enough to judge. So we'll take those two in turn. First, with respect to not being good enough to judge. The, the problem when you judge anybody about anything is that inevitably it's the case that you're worse if not in that specific area, in some other area. And so you make a fool of yourself because everybody but you can see that. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you're telling your friend you've got a speck of dust in your eye and you've got a plank sticking out of your own eye. He says it's kind of silly, it's kind of hypocritical. You're making a fool of yourself. When you tell somebody else, when when you look down on somebody else, and when you are just as bad, if not worse, in some other area at the same time. So the trick for this is you've got to take this thing that you're good at and turn it to help you with something that you're not good at. And what I mean by that is uh, all of us are pretty bad at making moral evaluations of ourselves. We're bad at looking at ourselves. We're bad at seeing our own faults. But all of us are extremely adept at noticing the faults of others. We don't, we don't struggle with that at all. It just comes naturally to us. We're all experts at it. So what if you could take this thing that you're so good at and that you do without even thinking about it, you can't help yourself from doing it, what if you could take that and tweak it and turn it back on yourself so that every time you notice somebody else's fault, you remember this, remember that I'm probably worse. I'm probably worse if not in this area than in some other area and look back at yourself. Then you're killing two birds with one stone. You're getting rid of this habit of judging while at the same time getting better at evaluating yourself. First aspect of why we're not qualified to judge is that we're not good enough. The second aspect is that we're not smart enough. We just don't know enough to judge anybody else fairly or accurately. And I talked about this a little bit in the meeting we had a couple of weeks ago after church. We just don't know. We don't know ourselves and we don't know other people. F.B. Myers is a New Testament commentator of a previous generation. He says this, When you see a brother or sister in sin, you have to realize there are three things you don't know. First, you don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin, so don't judge them. Secondly, you don't know the power of the forces that assailed him or her, so don't judge them. Third, you don't know what you would have done in the same circumstances, so don't judge them. And beyond all those circumstantial things we don't know, we've also talked before about how you can't compare any two individuals. It's always like comparing apples and oranges. So you see this person that is less patient than you are, extremely impatient, and it's just driving you crazy. You're spiritually judging them. But what you don't know is where they started out. They could be twice as patient as they used to be, and you've never improved in your whole life. They could be a far better steward of the deck that life has dealt them than you have been with the deck that life has dealt you. You just don't know. You're not in a position to judge fairly and accurately. There's all this information that you don't have, and only God does. So God is the only one who's qualified to judge. He's the only one good enough. He's the only one that can do it 
without making a fool of himself. And he's the only one smart enough that has all the requisite information. It's the first reason the Bible gives us for not judging the first motivation. Well, you can do it, but if you do it, you're going to make a fool of yourself. Number two, if God, the only one qualified to judge, is willing to show mercy to me, then how much more should I show mercy to others? If God, the only one qualified to judge, is willing to show mercy to me, then how much more should I show mercy to others? So you're not qualified to judge. God is. He's, he is qualified to judge, and he's qualified to judge you. Most people in the world, majority of people in the world, believe in a day of, of judgment at the end of time, and uh, most people go through their lives at one point or another fearing that day of judgment. And if you know anything about Christianity, you know that the basic message of Christianity is that you need not fear that day because God offers forgiveness. He offers mercy. He says, I will not pass judgment on you. Now, for a judge to do that, for a judge to say, I'm going to forgive even though you've broken the law, I'm going to let you off even though you've done something wrong, what a judge has to do basically is, is wink at the law or bend the rules in some sense. Because what the Bible also says is that all of us have done something worthy of divine judgment. But God is not the sort of God that can wink at the law. He's not the sort of God that can bend the rules. That's just not in his nature. And so the way that he forgives, the way that he offers this mercy is not by the wave of his hand. We've talked about this many times before, so you're very familiar with it. But rather, he offers that forgiveness and mercy at great cost to himself. Jesus is the judge who comes to be judged in our place. Jesus on the cross is what it looks like for God to offer us this forgiveness. That's what it costs God to not judge us. Jesus takes the death penalty in our place. And that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. He doesn't just do it arbitrarily or capriciously or on a whim. He does it at great cost to himself. And he expects that to make an impression on us. You know, when we see that, it's supposed to kind of melt your heart. You see what he's done for you. You see the way that he's forgiven you and refused to judge you, even though you deserve judgment. And that mercy is supposed to make an impression on you. You know, there's that, that place in uh, John 8, famous passage, with the woman caught in adultery, where, where this woman and Jesus are there before a crowd, and Jesus says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And the point is, Jesus was the only one who met that qualification. He's the only one that could have thrown a stone, and, but he didn't. And you see in the, the movie versions of this passage sometimes, Jesus will pick up a rock and then throw it into the ground to make the point. He could have thrown a stone. He did have the right to judge, but he didn't. He didn't judge her, and he didn't judge you. So then who are you to turn around and do the thing that even Jesus refused to do when he had a right to and you don't? That's the second reason. God was merciful to you. God refused to pass judgment on you, even though it cost him a lot to eat it up, to eat your sin and your faults. He bore the weight of them himself, and he expects you to do the same for others. Number three, third and finally, if you judge others harshly, God will judge you harshly. If you judge others harshly, God will judge you harshly. I said a second ago that one of the things I like about the Bible is that it doesn't just tell you what to do. It gives you reasons to do it, and it always gives you multiple reasons. It doesn't just give you one. It always gives you a few different reasons, which if you put them all together, it makes it all but impossible to not do the right thing if you really think about it. And anybody who, who knows how to motivate people understands this principle. So if you look back, for, for example, at the, uh, the speeches of General George Washington during the Revolutionary 
war. On the, on the eve of a great battle, he would always basically say the same thing to their troops, and he would always appeal to multiple motivations. So he'd start by saying, this is a glorious cause. This is the most important thing mankind has ever done. There is no greater use of your life than to fight in this revolution. And then he'd say, and also, remember our fallen brethren. Remember the guys that died in the last battle. Remember those who have already given their lives. Let's do this for them. Let's do this for their honor. Let's avenge their blood. And then he'd say, and don't forget about the British. Don't forget about those pompous British who are making fun of you, who think that you're garbage. Let's make them eat their words. And everybody's ready to go. You think it's, it's all over. And then he would always, as, almost as a PS at the end, Oh, and by the way, one last thing. If anybody runs as a coward, your officer will shoot you on the spot. And I love that. I love it. And that's basically what we have here with this third point. I love it because if all the other ones fail you, we've got this as a backstop. You've got one more reason to do the right thing. And that's what we have here. If it's not enough that Jesus gave you mercy and didn't judge you, if it's not enough that you make a fool of yourself, there's one more reason, which is that if you judge harshly, God will judge you harshly. It's very clear in Scripture. Jesus says it. Uh, you heard it in the passage. You know, If you do not forgive your brother, God will not forgive you. James says the same thing. Paul says the same thing. And Jesus tells that whole story about it in Matthew 18, which you heard Gary read, where there's this guy that owes the king a ton of money, massive debt. The king forgives the debt, and then the guy turns right around and, and leaves and goes to this other guy who owes him a much smaller debt and prosecutes him, and mercilessly prosecutes him and throws him in prison. And so the, the king gets word of this. He hears about it, and he says, well, if those are the rules he wants to play by, fine. Go find the guy and torture him until he pays his debt. And you say, well, well God would never do that. But that's exactly what Jesus says at the end of the parable. He says, this is exactly what my heavenly father will do to any of you who refuses to forgive your brother or sister from your heart, who is unable to refrain from passing judgment. God will renege on his forgiveness. He will retract his forgiveness. So all of a sudden, this is a matter of life and death, not judging others, not looking down upon, not passing judgment on others. It's a matter of life and death because judging others is the only sin that can't be forgiven. Everything else can be forgiven except not forgiving sins. And it makes sense if you think about it because you're essentially undercutting the very thing that's being offered at you. You're, you're mocking it. You're scorning forgiveness itself. You're delegitimizing forgiveness. You're burning the very bridge that you have to walk across. It makes sense that it would be this way. But it's, it's scary and it's supposed to be scary. You know, there's only one thing in the whole world that I can do to screw up my forgiveness, which means I'm going to try really, really hard not to do that one thing. And so should you. Let's pray. God, we are in awe of your refusal to pass judgment upon us. We know that the things we've done, we know the ways we've hurt others, the ways we've lied, the ways we've cheated and stolen and neglected others, the ways we've belittled people, and you forgive all of that. You, you say, I'm not going to judge you, I'm going to accept you, because I want to have a relationship with you, so I'm going to let you come to me with all those faults. And that means a great deal to us. 
And we see here this morning how important it is that we have that same attitude toward the others in our lives, that we don't take a position of superiority and looking down on them, but that we accept them the way that you accepted us. Help us, God. We don't want to jeopardize our relationship with you. We don't want to jeopardize our forgiveness. We don't want to lose what you've given us, and we know how fragile it is. So impress these things upon our heart. Show us how we make a fool of ourselves when we judge. Show us just how much it costs you to forgive us and to not judge us. And remind us when those motivations fail us that everything is riding on this. And then if we we judge others, you will judge us just as harshly. We ask that we would do these things in the power of your spirit. We ask that you would come alongside us and help us. We ask that you would encourage us and guide us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.